Well, one of my favorite gifts, or if you're a total monster, one of my favorite gifs with a soft G, but, but no, it's, it's gifs with a hard G. Listen, the guy that invented the gif said you say it gifs. So one of my favorite gifs is, I use often, is of former NBA star Jalen Rose. Now, maybe you have no idea what a gif is, and you have no idea who Jalen Rose is. That's okay. This is for you as well. So Jalen Rose is recording a podcast, and this is how he responds to his co-host. He says, nah, not going to be able to do it. So whenever virtually anytime someone from work emails me and asks me to do something, I send them this back. And you know, the great thing about a GIF is that it actually moves when you send it. So he's not just saying, nah, not going to be able to do it. He's actually like shaking his head like this. And I'm like a blast to work with, you know? You ask me to do something simple, and I send you this in response. And even though my kids, my sons, Bevan and Owen, they're too young to know what this gif is yet, they, they will one day, I actually often imagine that they think this when I tell them to do certain things, right? I mean, the classic example is, listen, these... These green things on your plate, I know they don't taste good, but they're healthy for you. They will help you to grow big and strong. And I just imagine both Bevan and Owen going, nah, (laughs) not going to be able to do it, right? Or, or, Or how about this one, trying to instill this in my children. I often say to them, I often try to teach them, it is better to give than receive. Better to give than receive. Now, for Owen, he's a year and a half. I mean, it's like, nah, not going to be able to do it. Sharing? Like, what are you talking about? Giving? No, I'd much rather receive. Thank you. But but let's wait. Hold on for a second, because think about that. It's better to give than receive. If if I'm being totally honest, and and maybe you're with me, that's that's kind of a Jalen Rose moment for me, too. What do you mean it's better to give than receive? Nah, not going to be able to do it. And it actually leads me to wonder who we have to blame for that one. Who's responsible for this better to give than receive line of thinking? Well, as it turns out, it's Jesus. Jesus was the one that said this. And it's fascinating because you can comb through the Gospels, the the four books of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus while he lived on earth. You can comb through and you actually won't find this exact phrase, But he did say it exactly like this. And you actually find it in the book of the New Testament that we've been studying for most of this year, the book of Acts, in our chapter for this morning, chapter 20. Now, Acts is the story of what Jesus continued to do through the early church, once resurrecting and leaving earth. And we've titled this portion of our journey through the book of Acts, Sent, because that's what we see happening. Jesus sent his followers out to proclaim his incredible story, that he lived, died, and rose again, all so that anyone and everyone could believe in him and experience new life. And beginning in Acts 13, the Apostle Paul becomes a central character, Luke, who authored both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, he traces, beginning in chapter 13, he traces several of Paul's journeys around the Roman Empire as he proclaims the message of Jesus and plants churches in various cities. And this morning in Acts 20, we find Paul starting another journey, this time back to Jerusalem. And while he's on this journey, he is able to stop and reconnect with Christians who are the result of his work on earlier trips. 
people who became Christians who surrendered their lives to Jesus because Paul came to their city and preached the gospel. So as you can imagine, these are people that Paul loves very dearly. It actually reminds me of an opportunity that I had a couple summers ago to perform the wedding ceremony for a girl who was in the first youth group that I ever worked at. Sarah called me and said, hey, I'm, I'm getting married. I said, Sarah, you, you can't get married. You're a seventh grader. But that's not how time works. And, and she was no longer a seventh grader. But what, what a joy for me to get to reconnect with Sarah and, and hear about what God had been doing in and through her since she heard. The, I, was, I was 18 I was preaching my first and my absolute worst sermons, and, and somehow Sarah was a Christian still. Uh, but what a joy for me. And that's the setting of Acts 20. That's what's happening here. Paul is reconnecting with those that he loves and cares deeply for and are a result of his work, his ministry. And we're going to focus our time in the second half of the chapter, verses 17 through 38. And in those verses, Paul is in the port city of Miletus. Now, Miletus was uh, close-ish to the city of Ephesus, which you might remember from Pastor Bill's sermon last week. Acts 19, the chapter right before ours, covers the account, and it's, it's actually a really incredible story, of Paul's time in the city of Ephesus. And one thing that's so unique about Paul's time in Ephesus is how long he was able to stay there. There were cities that he was only in for for days or maybe weeks because a mob would get incited and would run him out of town. But in Ephesus, he was actually able to stay with these folks for three years, which just underlines the point even more. Paul was incredibly close to the Ephesian Christians, and so he can't resist this opportunity to connect with them. Now, he can't afford the time that it would take for him to travel inland and then meet with them and then come back, but he he sends for them. He sends word and he asks them to join him in Miletus so that he can address them. And so they come, and and he doesn't know exactly what will behold him in Jerusalem, but he thinks, he's actually pretty convinced, you'll hear in a moment, he's convinced that this might be the last time he's going to see him, to see them. So put yourself in that place. Have, have you ever had to say goodbye to a treasured friend? Or treasured friends? Have you ever had to leave one place and go to another? Maybe you knew, oh, I'd get to see these people again, but maybe not. That's what's happening here in Acts 20. Paul is, is leaving. He loves these people. It's his farewell address. And I'm going to read all of his farewell address for us this morning. It's a bit of a longer passage, but it's rich with emotion, love, and longing. And I'm going to read it to us from the New Living Translation, and so it'll actually be on the screens for you to follow along. Here is the word of the Lord. Here is Paul's farewell address to the Christians from Ephesus. When they arrived, Paul declared to them, You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God, and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know exactly what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. 
And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those that he has set apart for himself. I have never coveted, remember that I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than receive. I mean, there it is, right there, plain as day, Paul quoting the Lord Jesus. It is better to give than receive. But the question for us, I know the question for me still remains, how? How is it actually better to give than receive? How can that be true? And we'll see, because Paul frames this out, his message around generos generosity. Giving is not just something that Paul tacks on at the end of this farewell address, but this theme is present throughout all of it. And so we're going to walk back through and we're going to see what Paul had to say to this group of Christians about being sent to give. About being sent to give. And we're actually also going to see what this might mean for us. Because just imagine with me, for a moment, imagine that our community actually believed, actually believed and actually lived out that it is better to give than receive. What would that look like? What would our community, what would this place, what would these people look like if this was our mantra over and over and over again? It is better to give than receive. And we didn't just say that. It wasn't just a mantra. It wasn't a saying. It was something we lived out. What would we give? How would we give? Well, the first thing that Paul says in Acts 20 is that we should give expecting significant cost. Give expecting significant cost. Verse 19 of our passage, Paul references, it's almost like a little drive-by, the many trials that he experienced throughout his church planting journeys. And, and if you've been with us at all, if you've heard any prior sermon in the book of Acts, then you know likely that he was, he was not kidding he had so many trials, so many afflictions. There always seemed to be a plot against his life, an angry mob trying to kill him. I think one of the ones that stands out to me, maybe you remember back in Acts chapter 14, Paul has already been run out of two cities, Iconium and Antioch, and he's moved on to Lystra, and the people that ran him out of town in Antioch and Iconium, they're not satisfied with that. They hear that he's in Lystra, so they actually pick up and they travel to Lystra so that they can incite another mob against Paul and try to kill him. And, and this time, they, they come as close probably as, as anyone ever did. They stone him and leave him for dead outside the city. But he's not dead. He gets back up, and what does he do? He goes back into Lystra. 
incredible. It's incredible. And now in Acts 20, speaking of the journey that he's just begun back to Jerusalem, here's what he says of it, verses 22 and 23 of our passage. Look back with me. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I mean, can you imagine? Here's what Paul says. I don't know the specifics of what's ahead of me. The only thing the Holy Spirit will tell me is that it's going to be more of the same. Afflictions, trials, hardships. But yes, I'm going anyway. And that really is his posture. Paul so very clearly expected giving himself away for Jesus and his mission to carry with it significant cost. In fact, in the next chapter, Acts 21, Paul is still on this journey to Jerusalem, and he's with some different Christians in Caesarea. And there's another a prophet who comes named Agabus who prophesies that, yes, indeed, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to bind you and hand you over to the Gentiles. And understandably, this, this impacts Paul's friends deep to his core, and they beg him not to go. But here's his reply in Acts 21, verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Give, Paul says, expecting significant cost. Hey, this is a theme that we have seen over and over again in the book of Acts, and we're not done seeing it either. Opposition, resistance, these are going to continue to reveal themselves as themes as we journey through the next eight chapters in this book. And so I wonder, and maybe you wonder with me, why do we expect it to be any different? Why do we think our version of the generous Jesus life should be opposition-free? Why don't we expect giving of ourselves to Jesus and his mission to actually cost us something? We would do well, I think, to remember more regularly Jesus' teaching in Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. In those verses, Jesus challenges, without apology, two idols that still plague us today, family and money. Family and money. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches to both of those. He says, I need to be more important. Full stop. He says, the cost of following me is significant, and you would do well to consider it before you start. Which leads, I think, to a fair question. Why follow Jesus at all? Why do it? Jesus lived an incredibly difficult life, and he said consistently, the same is going to be true for my followers. And Paul, he certainly exemplified that, and he preached a consistent message with Jesus on this front. If you follow Jesus, expect opposition, hardship, trials. And then when we step out of the biblical story, you can trace opposition, persecution, hardship. You can trace it up right to present day where millions of our Christian brothers and sisters around the globe, they choose to follow Jesus every day knowing that it very well might cost them their earthly lives. Why? Why do it? The 20th century ended 18 years ago, which somehow is true while not seeming true at all, 
But I, I find this fact still incredibly stunning. It bowls me over every time. From the year 1900 to the year 2000, just 100 years, there were more Christians that were killed for their faith in Jesus than the prior 19 centuries combined. Let me say that again. From the, in the 100 years, from 1900 to 2000, there were more Christians that were killed and martyred for their faith than in the prior 1900 years combined. Now, some of that is due to population growth, but still, still, what Jesus preached, what Paul lived, is still happening today. There is opposition and hardship waiting for those who decide to follow Jesus. So why? Why make that decision? Why follow Jesus? Well, it's because there is grace here. Did you hear the, the, the tone? Did you hear the theme of grace come through in Acts 20? Look back with me. Acts 20, 24. Paul has just finished in verse 23 saying that he knows imprisonment and afflictions lie ahead in Jerusalem. But here's what he says next, Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only if I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, what was that ministry? What was it that God called, commissioned, and commanded Paul to do? This is it right here. The ministry was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Grace. The glorious good news that in spite of us, Jesus died for us. That while we were still Jesus' enemies, he died to make us his friends. Grace, the story that no matter how bad you blow it, God is still there with his arms open wide, begging you to come home to him. Grace. I mean, it's amazing, grace, isn't it? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Grace is available here in Jesus. Grace abundant. Grace that heals, transforms, revives, restores. Grace that takes dead people and makes them alive again. Grace is why we follow Jesus, isn't it? But how does this grace get out into the world? Well, Paul is clear, through a Christian community that is committed to generosity, through a Christian community that is committed to giving themselves away so that others can come to know, come to see, come to believe exactly what is so amazing about grace. So I have to ask, are you giving grace even though it will cost you? Are you giving grace even though it will cost you? I mean, it's an unavoidable question. If you actually are convinced that Jesus' grace is amazing, then you give it to others no matter what. In the face of hardship, opposition, rejection, trials, afflictions, yes, it's hard. I know that. I feel that with you this morning. Yes, it's a one step forward, two steps back kind of journey. But we remain committed faithful, fruitful, getting back up when we fall, continuing to give grace even though it costs us. Give, expecting significant cost. That's the first thing that Paul says, give, expecting significant cost. Here's the second, give what is true. Give what is true. Maybe you notice how much of Paul's message is about this idea of truth, Take a look back with me again, starting now in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. In these verses, Paul is addressing the reality of, of false teaching, of, of false ideas, and he offers two commands that underline how important he believes this is. Pay careful attention and be alert. Pay careful attention and be alert. For Paul, false teaching is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so he desperately wants the Ephesian Christians to be ready for it, to not be caught by surprise. And you might have noticed in these verses, Paul also reveals the source of the false teaching. And he says it, it actually comes in from two different places, and we shouldn't miss it. The first, he says that false teachers will come in among you. So they, they weren't in before. They will come in among you. In other words, there will be false teachers that will come from outside the church, which on the whole, I think we're probably more comfortable with that idea. This idea that like inside the church, we've got it figured out and we have the truth here. And yeah, there's some false ideas, some false teachers out there. But okay, we can be alert for that. But did you see what Paul said second? Did you catch it? He also said this. This is harrowing. He said, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Now, say that again, Paul. What? It's not just false teachers out there that we have to worry about. No, Paul is incredibly clear. This is an in-house problem as well. It actually reminded me of that like, really classic horror movie trope. You know the one where we've traced the call and it's coming from inside the house. Maybe you know this one, right? But in all seriousness, this should be something that frightens us a little bit. This should be something that we take seriously. This shouldn't be something that we dismiss. Consider this example. Here at Christ Community, we believe deeply that work matters that what you do, whether paid or unpaid, is as much worship as what we're doing here right now on Sunday morning. And furthermore, we also believe that your work, whatever it may be, is just as pleasing and important to God as my work as a pastor. We deeply believe that. But unfortunately, there are still loads of churches today that, that don't believe and don't teach this. And instead, maybe without realizing it, but they perpetuate what scholars have called the sacred-secular divide, the idea that some jobs, pastors, missionaries, quote, ministry jobs are sacred. There's a higher calling, the jobs with which God is really most pleased, and everything else is sort of lower, quote, secular work. So if you really love God and want to follow him fully, then you'll drop everything to pursue one of these sacred higher callings. But this just isn't biblical thinking. In fact, the whole arc of Scripture affirms work of all different types and never creates the false sacred-secular categories that so many churches are enamored with. And what's more, consider the implications of the sacred-secular divide with me. If a church is convinced of the sacred-secular divide, then they will never spend any length of time considering how our Sunday faith can and should impact our Monday through Friday work. 
Listen, whatever your job is, you spend the majority of your time doing it. Ought not your faith impact it somehow? And we certainly think so. And and Christ Community, we're committed to helping you close the gap that too often exists between Sunday and Monday. So as a church, we work very hard to do this, to give what is true, to only and ever proclaim what is true. Can I ask you to help us? Can I invite you to help us do this? Will you work with us to ensure that our church continues to proclaim truth at all times and in all ways? Because listen, I read these verses in Acts 20 and they do frighten me. Because I'm not naive. I know that I'm not, that that we're not immune to proclaiming falsehood. I, I work hard, we work hard, we pray, we hope, we trust that this will never happen. But the moment that I or we as pastors start thinking, oh, that would never happen to us, that's a dangerous and scary moment, isn't it? So help us. Because this is important, isn't it? A truth is a theme in the book of Acts, and so we've visited this already in prior sermons. But how desperate is our culture for truth today? How important is it that we get this right? If you, if you can't get truth in church, Jesus is our head, right? Jesus is our head. Jesus is what all of this is pointed at. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you can't come to church and get truth, where can you go? So help us do this, please. We invite you to do this with us. Give, help us give what is true. Third, third, Paul says, give yourself fully to the mission. Give yourself fully to the mission. And it is incredibly notable, isn't it, that Paul closes this address to these people that he loves so much. It's incredibly notable that the last thing he wanted to say, his crescendo, his conclusion, I find it fascinating that he explicitly names the central importance of radical generosity. Well, we cannot miss that. Verse 35, in all things... I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Paul is clear in his admonition, do what I've shown you to do. Give of yourself freely and fully to this mission. Now, what is that mission? Well, it's the mission that was given to Paul and by extension is given to us by Jesus himself to tell and convince as many people as possible that there is new life possible in Jesus, extol them to the importance of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says he did in in all of Asia. From the moment I first arrived, I extolled people to the importance of repenting from their sins, to turning to God, and of placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul says earlier in the address in Acts 20, you know that I did this. You know that I worked tirelessly at it and that I did not shy away from it. And he concludes his message by saying, now you need to do the same because church, the mission is still not finished. It wasn't finished when Paul addressed these Ephesian Christians in Acts 20 and 2,000 years later and 6,000 miles away. Guess what, church? Listen, don't miss it. The mission still is not completed. How many people do you know that are not yet convinced of the amazing grace that is available in Jesus Christ. 
the mission is still not yet finished. So what are we waiting for to give ourselves fully true it? And yes, there is much that is different between ancient Ephesus and modern-day Kansas City. There is so much that is different between the Apostle Paul and me, Pastor Paul. But you know what? As much as is different, so much more is the same. It's the same message, the good news of Jesus that he came, lived, died, and rose again. It's the same mission, and it's the same Jesus who the book of Hebrews says is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. A lot more, folks, is the same than is different. So what are we waiting for to give ourselves fully to the mission? The Apostle Paul believed deeply in the local church, and we do too. We do what we do at Christ's community because of what Paul said in Acts 20. The work is not finished, and we know that we must give ourselves fully to it. We believe that the best way for someone to become a follower of Jesus is to put a new church in their backyard. That's why we're one church in five locations. We have more land in Leewood. We could have kept building bigger and bigger buildings, but instead, 12 years ago, we decided that as much as possible, take church to Kansas City. Five churches, one city, Leewood, Olathe, downtown, Brookside, Shawnee Mission. We support one another. We care for each other. We cry together. We celebrate together. Did you know? That today, the Olathe campus is opening their new space for children and students. Celebrate with them. Pray that more would come to know of the grace that is available here. Did you know that the Shawnee Mission campus is still desperately seeking land for a building? Cry with them as they have to set up and tear down every week. Pray for them. Did you know how we came to be here in Brookside? Did you know that an anonymous donor from within our congregation gave the money to purchase this building and do the renovations so that you and I could be here together when we were not yet here on mission together, committed fully to the mission so that others who are not here yet could come and be here? Did you know that? Did you know that when you give to Christ's community, you support the work of at least, at least 700 local churches around the globe? Kenya, Germany, India, China, Leewood, Olathe, downtown, Shawnee Mission, Brookside. Give yourself fully to the mission. Are you doing that? If yes, thank you. I know so many of you are, and we're incredibly grateful for an incredibly generous congregation. Many of you already give of yourselves fully to the mission. But if you're not, can I ask why? What's holding you back? Now, for both groups, here's our final question. How could you increase your generosity toward the mission? How could you increase your generosity toward the mission? Not just finances, though that's a big part of it, but time and talent, too. Because do you know what happens when a community commits to this fully? They go after it with everything they've got and all that they are. Take a look at what happens. The end of Acts 20 Verses 36 and 37, this is what happens after Paul addresses the Ephesian Christians. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. What a beautiful picture of a beautiful community. This is what happens when everyone in a community looks at one another and says, not what can I get from you, but what can I give to you? It's a paradigm shift. Not what can I get from you, but what can I give to you? 
And I believe we're doing this here. Not perfectly, not by a long stretch, but we're striving toward it. One of our initiatives at Christ Community that I'm most excited about is our Kansas City Fellows Program. It's a nine-month immersive leadership experience for just graduated college students. It's truly incredible, and I'll just say again, your generosity makes it possible. Did you know that you are making a lasting impact in the lives of young leaders when you give and contribute at Christ Community? Unprompted, one of our KC fellow grads wrote us a letter of thanksgiving. She's transitioning out of Kansas City, and she wanted to pass along what this church had meant to her. I mean, she's a lot like Paul. She's leaving a church that she loved dearly, and she had some parting words. And here's what she said. Here's what happens when a community truly believes that it's better to give than receive. Christ community, thank you. This family has a way of expressing an unparalleled joy, is deeply generous, and is quick to wrap tenderly around anyone who needs to know the love of Christ. You all have challenged me in my thinking and actions, forever growing me to be more like Christ. Being a part of this body and its desire to close the Sunday to Monday gap has dared me to fully commit myself to my vocational calling with joy, knowing God has intended our work to have eternal impact. I recently had a coworker ask me, why do you get giddy when you talk about church? I responded, because it is my favorite hour of the week. There is no place I feel greater joy and love than when I get to worship God alongside people who love God and love me. I mean, that's just it, isn't it? I mean, that's what all of this is about, this giving ourselves away. I read something like that, and I'm like, yeah, it is better to give than receive. It convinces me. It encourages me. Again, we're not a perfect church. We don't have it all figured out, but we're working at it. We're doing our best to give ourselves fully to the mission of Jesus to the mission of Jesus, who he himself lived this out, didn't he? It is better to give and receive was not just a phrase for Jesus. It was how he lived his entire life. Think of all that he gave. He knew that coming to earth would mean mockery, that it would mean rejection, that it would mean betrayal by some of his closest friends, that it would mean suffering at the hands of his people. He knew that it would mean death on a cross, and yet he came anyway gave literally everything he had so that this world, so that you, so that I could have grace upon grace. And now he asks us to do the same. So give, expecting significant cost, and give what is true, and give yourself fully to the mission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus did come, that he did not count... Um, that he did not count himself worthy uh, to not come, Lord, but instead emptied himself and humbly came to earth so that he could give himself away. Father, what a paradigm, what an example for us. What a Savior, what a Lord. Thank you for Jesus, the greatest gift of all. We pray, Father, that we would live in light of Jesus' most generous gift, the giving of himself, and that we might do that in the lives of others, Lord. Give ourselves away by the power of the Spirit, for your honor, for your glory, for your kingdom, and so that more people can come to know the grace that is available here. Amen.